Well, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Ladies Who Switch. It's the end of what has been an exhilarating Ashes series. Points were shared, England won two of the three series on offer, but it's Australia who retain the Ashes. And I must say, as somebody from the outside, if I had won two out of three series on offer and performed really well throughout, I don't think I'd be too happy with that. Valkyrie Baines has been on the ground. She's been listening to all the stories. Valkyrie, would it be fair to say that the England woman maybe feel a little bit cheated, a little bit like it was theirs, in fact, that they won? Yeah, don't worry about being um, from the outside looking in. It feels weird from the inside as well. Um, yeah, to win both white ball series and still not walk away with the trophy is a strange work of the multi-format uh, women's ashes system with the test being worth four points, so double any of the uh, white ball games. Um, to, in fairness, I mean, this was obviously the main talking point after England won the um, the third one day international yesterday at Taunton. Um, and I guess in fairness, Heather Knight sort of said, look, this is the rules that we knew we were playing under. It was the same for everyone else. So she didn't take massive issue. And she said that in the past, England have been the beneficiary of that system, having won a test, lost the white ball series and managed to win the ashes. So um, that's not to say that things won't change. The fact that that happened previously um, to England did prompt a, a shift in sort of the point system and that could well be looked at again. Um, but uh, I mean, I think they're going to leave that to the boffins, as she said, to, to work out. Um, but yeah, one one idea that Heather Knight, um, the England captain, floated was maybe making one element or one match worth an odd number of points so there's there's not going to be a draw um so whether you make the test worth five or three or, or something like that I guess then you've got to decide whether you still give the test more weighting than the others um and the reasons behind that I mean do we want more women's tests therefore make it worth more do we you know do we say well women don't play tests as much as things currently stand so do we make it worth the same or fewer it's yeah it's something that that can be looked at and 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 you know probably should be but it's sort of been this way for a while and both teams sort of knew what they were getting into so yeah I think interestingly too whilst England might have felt um, or would you know didn't feel that you know this is a bit strange I think it was strange for Australia too I mean I think in the immediate aftermath after yesterday's loss, Elisa Healy, their, um, their standing captain, said it felt like a, a bit of a dirty victory in the sense that it wasn't a true victory. Um, she was a little bit more circumspect when she came to face the press conference after and sort of was was talking in more detail about, you know, the where, the areas they need to improve in and, and that sort of thing um, and, and her pride at the fact that they had sort of through – basically not playing their best and not being the Australia that we're used to seeing, still managing to to walk away with the the trophy retained. So that was a job done. She said they didn't achieve the job that they had originally set out to do, which was to win the Ashes outright. But, um, but yeah, they had to sort of take it uh, given the challenge they faced from this England side this time. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I just want to talk about the point structure because personally, and we've discussed this on the pod before, women's tests are so rare Sure, we enjoy them and, and they have, I suppose, a novelty value to them. But for that fixture to carry the most weight, given that it's the format that's played the least, and I think that there's a lot of element of uncertainty. There's not a lot of form to go on. I know they played the warm-up games 
and Heather Knight is a very smart individual. We know she's got a master's degree in sports science and has done all the calculations. I like the idea of an odd number of points. Personally, I would weight the test the least and I would weight the white ball formats more because those are the formats that are played more. Those are the formats where the players are more likely to have a good idea of game plans and strategies and to know how to win. And uh, yeah, that, that's what I would like to see done in future Ashes series. But I want to talk specifically about the one-day games, which we had a look at last week. And I was really hoping we'd see 300 topped and chased. That didn't happen. But we did see England come really close to chasing 283. It's that second one-day game in Southampton that I want to talk about. They lost by just three runs. Nats of a brunt with a brilliant century. It looked like they would really stay in the hunt for the Ashes. What changed in that game? What do you think happened that they weren't able to chase that score? And did it change kind of the mood and the morale around the home camp? Yeah, really interesting one. I think what England had done so well and the reason they got so very close or, you know, on an evil, even footing with um, Australia in this series was they truly believed that they could beat this side. And, I mean, it's all very well to say, you know, a team has to go into a, an international contest going, yeah, we can beat them. It's all very well to say that and believe, and sort of believe it. But it's not until you actually play like you believe it that it's going to count for something. And I think they really discovered that. So they lost that first T20 international at Edge Baston, but it was a really close run thing. I mean, it was a four wicket win to Australia, but they won it with one ball to spare. And that got England ticking in the mind thinking, do you know what? We have actually just played in a way that can push this all beating, all conquering world, you know, world beating side. Um, and I think from there on, they did actually flick a switch and, and played with the belief that they actually had been saying that they had. So then they got those two victories in the T20 series, go into the one day series, um, sort of on a, on a high, win that first one. I think what happened in Southampton was that we saw the Australians of old click finally. Um, and We've talked a lot about their ability to win those clutch moments, perform under pressure, um, and and when if one player doesn't have the greatest day, they've got a load of others that can come in and, and step in. And I think we actually saw that succeed in Southampton. What had happened prior to that was that they were up against an England side that were doing exactly the same thing. They were holding their nerve in the clutch moments. They were performing to the depth that they've had on paper for so long. I mean, if you look at the talent in that side, that batting lineup one to seven is, you know, capable of great things. And they really sort of showed that today and, and played with the belief that they can. And I think, yeah, what happened in Southampton was it was very, very close. I mean, it came down to that last ball. Um, you had Jess Jonathan bowling that final over uh, two Nats Brunt, two combatants that had been in this situation before um, in the World Cup uh, in 2022. And, um, and yeah, it just happened, so happened that needing sort of five to win off that last ball, it was just, you know, one tiny step too far. And, um, and yeah, the Australians managed to prevail. I think after that, yeah, sure, then the Ashes were gone and England players have talked about that bus journey they went straight from Southampton down to Taunton on the bus and they sort of talked about it being a pretty quiet affair you know sort of a bit low having sort of the ashes decided then and there with a match to play but 
I think in a way that was a good thing because they could get it out their system on, you know, on a bus journey and park it, so to speak, no pun intended, but they like to say that and then just say, well, look, we're going to go out and try to win this one day series. And what bragging rights that would give them in terms of being able to win both those white ball series, but, you know, okay, so the ashes are gone, but let's be able to turn around and say that we've won both of the the T20 and the One Day International Series. So I think it was just a case of it clicked for Australia on the day. What had worked for them for so long in the past did actually work for them there. But then they came up against, uh, you know, an England side that had been playing so well and were able to revert to that. And that's for Brunt, another century in that third game. So two on the bounce for her. You know, we've seen her, I, I thought, perhaps at her best in some of the tournaments gone past. But every time we think she's kind of reached a peak, she seems to be able to to go one higher. And we've spoken about her taking a break for mental health concerns, coming back a lot stronger. Now she's playing without her wife, Catherine Silverbrandt, who I believe was in the commentary box and on air during some of those nail-biting moments, trying to keep it together, but also trying to express herself. It must have been really interesting for, for her to experience, you know, being on the other side of it. But what can you say about Nat Silverbrandt's performances? Is she getting better? Are the players around her improving as well? And I mean, is she the best player in women's cricket at the moment? Yeah, just incredible. I, I genuinely don't know what it is about her against Australia, but she seems to pull these performances out of the bag against them. That was um, her fourth century in five one-day internationals against Australia. Um, the previous three had come in losing causes and quite, you know, quite close ones at that. But yeah, the fact that um, this one came in a in a winning cause was just, you know, that little bit more special. And interestingly enough, Heather Knight, who batted with her for a large portion of yesterday's game. They put on 147 together. Um, I, she sort of said that that was probably the scratchiest she'd seen her as well. And there was a period after the first drinks break where Australia really clamped down on the scoring rate. Um, then they sort of had a couple of good overs and sort of broke the shackles and off they went again. Um, yeah, I think she is just an incredibly talented player, Nat Brunt, and she seems to just bring it every time. Um, they're up against Australia. She also did have, you mentioned other players around her. Um, she did have some great support. I mean, that partnership with Heather Knight and then Danny Wyatt, she came out and did exactly what England employ her to do yesterday. Really quick fire, um, 40, uh, or I think it was 40, 41 off 23 balls or, or thereabouts, just really injected once Heather Knight got out, really injected so, you know, uh, some more energy and said, like, let's keep going on with this, let's keep building and just you know, with her shot placement is just so exciting and she's really quick between the wickets. So she really kept that tempo up and yeah, she got out in the forties, but that's exactly what England needed to really bump that score up and bump it up quickly. So that was brilliant. Um, Amy Jones has had a good series. Um, she played really well in that T20 that they lost um, in Birmingham. She had, a, you know, if they hadn't won that, she would have been pivotal there. Um, Sophia Dunkley, the opening batter, she hasn't had the greatest of um, of series. So, um, you know, that's sort of something that um, she'll reflect on and, and go away and work on. Tammy Beaumont in the one day as she came back after missing the T20 section and was really important again, having scored that double century in the 100. So like I was saying before, on paper, these players are, you know, absolutely world class and they have actually been able to perform um you know as a collective in this series and that's been really important and and really key um what what sort of stood out for you do you think in in terms of whether it be England's you know improvement or Australia's you know 
you know, what are we seeing here from them? What what were the takeaways that you you had from it? Yeah, watching from uh, from afar, I think what was really key was watching that Australia could be beaten because we've spoken so much about how difficult it is to beat them and how much depth they have. And for the first time, I did kind of wonder whether their player pool or maybe rather whether other countries' player pools are starting to catch up with them and whether other countries are able to find the talent. And because, you know, we've got so many more professional teams around the world and we've got people able to now dedicate the resources that Australia have dedicated for years into women's cricket, whether we're going to start to see teams catching up. I didn't expect that the catch-up would be this fast and that certainly not that England would win both white ball series. And those are really the two formats that we play World Cups in that we are talking about who is going to beat Australia. And I am starting to wonder if maybe, and the next Women's T20 World Cup is in Bangladesh, so we'd have to think about conditions as well, but maybe England are the team that's going to pose a very serious challenge to Australia at that level. And on the flip side of it, what almost stood out for me, but in a negative light, was that we spoke before the series about Alyssa Healy coming into the competition taking over the captaincy and she dropped down the order as well. She's got the extra responsibility of keeping wicket. But I expected her to have an almost Nats of a Brunt-like series, to be the leading player for Australia and scoring the most runs. And then that just didn't happen. And I wonder what it was. I mean, we, we've seen her. She's been present throughout the England summer. She's been at the men's ashes taking some notes while she watches Mitchell Stark play. And I assume that she's got a lot on her mind, on her shoulders. She's got such a big responsibility in the Australian team. It wasn't a good series for her. So did, could you pick up what went wrong and kind of where she slipped up? Yeah, sure. And look, I was with you. I remember saying on this podcast that, you know, she. you asked me, who. what are we going to see here? And I was like, she is, you know, she's going to be the, the player of the series. She's got that experience Um you know, to be able to take on the captaincy really well. And, you know, we know what she can do with the bat and her keeping and so on and so forth. And, um, yeah, I, I truly believe that as well. And I guess, you know, you're not always going to have a great series. You're not always going to be the star for your team. I mean, she, it is a lot to take on captaincy, wicket keeping and, you know, trying to be a key batter for your side. She said, you know, it, you it's no secret it is a, a tough job uh, doing the captaincy but having said that she did feel well supported and she has got some other you know heads around her that she can rely on so Elise Perry was helping out a lot with advice on the field um Jess Jonathan in terms of you know bowling and field placements and and that kind of thing um Talia McGrath is her vice captain sort of you know, up and coming in the, the leadership group so she she said that she felt well supported in that respect I think it just, you know, it is a lot to take on. And then, like I say, with with the bat, you know, I guess you're not always going to be the star. And, you know, when, when you've got all of that, you know, going on as well, it's difficult to focus, I guess, on on one thing, you know, purely. In fact, it's, it's impossible. I mean, she scored uh, 50 in the second innings of the test. And you thought, ah, oh, here she comes. Um playing in that test with a couple of broken fingers as well uh, wasn't ideal. And it's pretty impressive that she was able to to make that half century um, despite that. But um, alongside all of that, she also scored a duck in the test match. And then she's had three other single figure scores. She only passed 16 once uh, for the rest of the series. So yeah, it was a lean series with, with the bat for her, but I think it, it was a, a lot to do. And, um, and, you know, Credit to England, she was coming up against an England side that were really firing in a way that they hadn't done um, in the past. 
um, Elisa Healy spoke yesterday, um, you know, on reflection about the hole that was left at the top of the batting order with the retirement of Rachel Haynes and obviously Meg Lanning, who was a late withdrawal from this tour and their regular captain um, for medical reasons and sort of we don't know when or or if, you know, she's going to be back. So, it, you know, it's a time, I guess, for looking at how this team goes forward, you know, with or without her, depending on sort of what, what happens. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they'll do that. They go to Ireland now. So um, like they, they leave today. So it's a, a quick turnaround. And I guess, you know, he, Elisa Healy's got, you know, an opportunity there again to, you know, work through what, um, you know, what she feels sort of went not so good and, and what did go good for them and, and sort of try and work through that against Ireland. But yeah, it, I think it was a, a combination of factors, a, a, a lot against them and, and, you know, and a lot going for England in, in this instance. Yeah, and Ireland, a good chance for them to show what they're made of after quite a chastening tour of West Indies. So it didn't really go very well for them there. But we know that they're a plucky team. We saw them at the T20 World Cup here in South Africa. They've got some really good players. We mentioned all of Prendergast on the podcast before. Gabby Lewis, we know, very talented as well. So a good opportunity and excellent to come up against the world champions and... The Ashes champions, even though we might not want to necessarily call them that, given what happened in the in the points terms. Just a final word on Beth Mooney. She was able to take back the number one ODI ranking from Chamari Atapatu. It seemed to have been a little bit of a seesaw the last couple of weeks. She's always looked good, from what I can remember. And certainly at the T20 World Cup, she was at her authoritative best. How did she look to you as the series came to a conclusion? Yeah, very good. She was one of their key performers and she, she, I guess, had the tour that you would expect of her. She was just ever reliable, um, you know, getting the runs. Um, and, and also she also provides that experience on the field as well. So she's someone else that, I mean, she's excellent as a fielder, but she's also someone that can provide advice and help, you know, in terms of leading um, in, in the field. So yeah, she was great. Another um, very experienced hand, Elise Perry, had a great series as well. Um, I think what it was for Australia, though, is if you look at those two players, they were consistently quite dependable throughout, but neither of them nor did anyone else have that real blinder of an innings. So we talked about Elisa Healy's 50 in the test, Elise Perry made 99 in the test and then um, had that uh, half century in Southampton that was really key um, in, in setting them up. So... Um, Beth Mooney had an 80-81 in the, the first one day or in Bristol. Um, so I think they, they had those innings that you'd expect of them, but they didn't have that one that really went on like Nat Siver Brunt did, you know, twice in a row. So I think that hurt them a little bit as well um, in terms of the the results. So, yeah, I mean, they, they were both so pretty dependable. One um, really nice re- revelation for them, I think, was Annabelle Sutherland, Um she had a couple of really good 50s. Oh, no, actually a century in the test and then a, a 50 um, in the, the one day at Southampton as well, which was was key. Uh, and then you had Georgia Wareham with that incredible cameo um, at the Aegeus Bowl, 37 not out of a 14 ball. So she showed what she could do in terms of that batting depth down the order, produced that innings that they really needed. And that's where, you know, the, the match came off for them. So, yeah, there were... Good signs there for them. I think they just were crying out for someone to have that big century um, that would have got them over the line, you know, a couple of other times. And then, you know, we wouldn't be talking about a drawn series to retain the ashes. Yeah, now there'll be plenty more 
in terms of the contest, we know the Ashes will be played with regularity. The next one will take place in Australia and it will be separate to the men's Ashes. So is there quite a lot to look forward to from a women's Ashes perspective as a standalone event going forward? I think that England have really thrown down the challenge to Australia, not only on the field, but off the field in terms of staging the women's Ashes. I mean, we saw record crowds here throughout. It was marketed, as we know, in line with the men's Ashes, which you know, all the players themselves are pointing to as being, you know, a real key to its success and being able to play at the bigger grounds in front of those big crowds was really, really important. Um, one issue with Australia is coming to stage those women's Ashes matches at big grounds. Australia doesn't have so many of those in-between sized stadiums that they do here in England, like around the 20, 30,000. They're more like the really great big stadiums, which are in yeah. city centres and which people are accustomed to going to. It's very, they're very easy and accessible to get to. Um, if if you're living, you know, in Sydney, then you're going to think, yeah, let's wander down to the SCG. It's you know, it's right in the heart of the city, and and we'll go and watch this game. But if you've got to travel out to North Sydney Oval, which is a, you know not miles away, but it is some distance and harder to get to, and parking and you know and what have you. It's a bit more of an effort. So I think if what Australia are going to need to consider going forward and, you know, it, it's probably too, possibly too late for the next dashes, but maybe beyond, we'll just sort of have to see. But is is it better to half fill or three quarters fill a big stadium um, or not really fill a stadium that's sort of out a bit further that people aren't going to travel to and the atmosphere is not going to be so great anyway so I think that's something worth weighing up and also I guess they've got scheduling issues with those big stadiums because you know they're either used for um, other cricket matches or you know you know I guess well in winter it's not an issue but a lot of them are used for football but we know we're not going to see an ashes in the Australian winter so that they're, they're sort of not that issue but it's like how do they sort of fit it in in terms of scheduling it's sort of a, the age-old issue that we're facing in cricket is um is sort of scheduling but I do think that's something that they really need to look at is you know do we play on these bigger grounds with you know not completely capacity you know t 20 world cup mcg heaving style um and or do we you know do we persist with sort of smaller grounds that aren't getting the the crowds and the atmosphere anyway so yeah I think England have really sort of said, look, this is how we've decided to put it on. What are you going to do over to you? Uh, what do you think? I really liked playing at the bigger stadiums. I mean, you were there and you would have seen the atmosphere. But I also think from a publicity perspective, you know, we we had great coverage of all the matches. It looked fabulous on the television. It was amazing to see the crowd streaming in. And I think it's very important to note that it's not just a female crowd. We're actually seeing crowds of people, men, women, kids, young boys, young girls, all getting behind a women's national team, which is something that's so important as people look to promote and grow the women's game. And we're now talking about things like equal pay that has come up from the ICC offering an equal amount of prize money at World Cups, which is fabulous. I don't think it addresses a lot of the root causes of issues, which is equal pay at board level from central contracts, as well as equal sponsorship opportunities, because that's really where the money is made. But it's a step in the right direction. And of course, the ICC can only do what the ICC can do. I would like to see the games played at big stadiums. Here in South Africa, we do something similar, I suppose. We play a lot of the women's games in places like East London, Potchefstroom, Benoni, the smaller grounds that we don't often take men's cricket to. 
And I'll just take a lesson from Zimbabwe, actually, where we just completed the World Cup qualifiers and a lot of the matches were held at a ground about 15 kilometers outside of Central Harare called Takashinga Cricket Club. In fact, that's where the Netherlands beat West Indies in that super over that will live on for all time. This ground is basically in a township in a disadvantaged area with not a lot of facilities around it. It hosted women's T20 internationals a couple of years ago and then hosted men's one-day international cricket for the first time at the qualifiers. There were people coming in all the time, school kids, passers-by, people who were interested in the game, who had adopted teams to support and who really took a lot of inspiration, I suppose, from what they saw taking place on that field. So I know that it's cool to play in big stadiums and we love that atmosphere. We love the kind of Coliseum vibe and you want to get thousands of people in. But playing cricket in smaller venues, which is inaccessible to a majority of the population, but is accessible to people who live in that area can really have a, a spin-off benefit. And I don't think that should be women's internationals only. I think we should be playing men's cricket in those venues. We should be playing age group cricket in those venues because it just gives people an opportunity to access the game and to be around cricket and understand what it's about and maybe want to get involved. But not so for the people of the state of Victoria who will not be hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games. And that's, I guess, our next big news item the Commonwealth Games is so important for women's cricket because we saw the women's teams compete there in Birmingham last year. I'm in a country where we've also absconded the right to host a Commonwealth Games. It's in fact that Birmingham Games that were due to be hosted in Durban. And Durban decided that they couldn't afford to host the Commonwealth Games, which is basically what the state of Victoria have decided as well. The costs are astronomical. We've seen countries pull out of Olympic bids for very similar reasons. It's gone up from 2.6 billion to 7 billion Australian dollars in costs, which is a huge amount of money. But no one's stepping up to host the Games yet. We've seen Australian cities say they're not interested. I'm fairly sure that cities here in South Africa would not be interested for similar reasons. So are they going to happen? Where are they going to happen? And what's going to happen to women's cricket at a multi-tournament event? Yeah, this is pretty incredible. I mean, the fact that Victoria have pulled out of hosting and this is a this is in a country that prides itself on sport sport is a religion there do you know what I mean and it's just like and the, the Commonwealth Games have you know always been you know part of the sporting fabric um, of the country I can remember and you will be too young to remember this but the 1982 Commonwealth Games hosted in Brisbane a giant kangaroo called Matilda entered the stadium she was winking and it's one of my childhood memories and I got really inspired by sport um you know by by watching this and you know it was it was you know a really big deal we have seen the Commonwealth Games shrink you know ever since and and you know you mentioned um Durban handing over to um the UK uh last time and, and you know that was a a downscale event but they still you know managed to put put on a, a really good show but I think this decision does raise questions. Is this the the death of the Commonwealth Games? You know, and it had only just begun for the the women's cricket. I mean, they they you know made their debut in Birmingham, and and Australia were planning to sort of leave here, and you know, with, with thoughts of going back home to defend their Commonwealth Games title. So, yeah, it it really is you know a a bit of a, a kick to to the the game of women's cricket if you know putting all of the other you know. Uh, events aside I think um, Elisa Healy had said 
been a half joking, but, you know, I'm from Sydney and I'd love it if, you know, Sydney put their hand up and said, you know, yes, please, we'll host it. I mean, and they have indicated along with Queensland that they don't want it. I did read an article today suggesting that talks were um, in place with the UK again, whether or not uh, Birmingham can can do it again or a, another city over here. But I mean, Sydney isn't the silliest idea. And, you know, it's a shame that they're not interested because they've got the 2000 Olympic um, infrastructure. I mean, that's a little bit more complicated in the sense that with the Olympics, you know, you've got to show the the legacy plan behind it. And I think and, you know, what you're going to do so you don't have all these, you know, great big, you know, white elephants sitting around in terms of sporting venues and, and what have you. Um, and I think that Sydney did it quite well because they turned the Athletes Village into housing um, and, and that kind of thing. And that's a, that's a well-established, you know, town now, the the, the former Olympic Village. Um, the Olympic Stadium is still used, but that's used a lot for rugby league and um, rugby union Um some AFL, that kind of thing. So, you know, it, it is in use. The Olympic pool is is now there and sort of used for the public and for, for national events, that kind of thing. So maybe in terms of this, they've done the legacy a little bit too well and, you know, it's going to be hard to you know, have another athletes village in Sydney and what have you. But for whatever reason, even if it just boils down to cost, you know, it doesn't sound like it's going to happen um, in Australia at this stage, which is a real shame. And I guess, you know, we can only hope that someone else is going to to step in. But And for, for sport as a whole, I mean, to see to see that event just sort of disappear would, would be a real shame. Um, but, yeah, I guess we have to sort of watch this space a little bit and, and sort of see, see what happens going forward. But, um, yeah, hopefully they can rescue something out of it. I've got an outside candidate who I think may want to step in. So I'm sure you know that the Commonwealth has now opened up to countries who are not British colonies who can apply to be part of the Commonwealth if they see shared values and they want to be part of it. And one of those countries is Rwanda, who have used cricket as a, a way to break away from their Francophone ties. They were a French colony, and it was just after decolonization that that terrible genocide happened in 1994 where we believe more than a million people were killed and the Rwandan people really believed that the French influence in the genocide was what ended up making it so bloody and so traumatic and so in an attempt to break away from that kind of association with the French they've tried to adopt English as the lingua franca they've tried to adopt a lot of English sport and customs one of them in fact is cricket And they did that by really investing in the women's game. We saw the Rwanda under-19 girls participate in the tournament in South Africa. They've got a beautiful stadium, which uh, is just outside of Kigali. It's kind of at high altitude in the mountains, and it's built on what used to be a soccer ground, but it's absolutely stunning. It hosts a tournament every year. It's a women's tournament, T20 tournament of African countries, and then they invite one other nation from outside. Germany have participated in this event. So I don't know if Rwanda have the infrastructure to host an entire Commonwealth Games. I think that might may take some work. But we do know that they're pushing really hard to find a place in the Commonwealth, albeit that it seems a bit strange for this former French colony to try and really create a space there. But that's what they're doing. And they're heavily invested in cricket. So maybe they won't host the entire Commonwealth Games, but they might host a multi-team cricket tournament and uh, people can go and participate. And that's really what we want to see. We know there's talk about cricket at the next Olympic Games as well. And personally, I'd like to see men's and women's teams involved in that, not just that cricket, uh, women's cricket is the only event that we see at the Olympics. We want to see it across both genders. But uh, maybe we'll see something like that pop up. 
Um, and maybe we'll just see another Commonwealth Games take place in the UK, in which case you'll be in prime position to cover it for us. I think it's time that we take a look at some women's cricket around the world. I'm not sure if you've had the time to have a little watch, but I have a huge just, upset. Yes. yes, I yes, go on. I have just a little bit um in yeah, tried to sort of get my head out of the ashes for a moment or two. But um yes, as you mentioned, so Bangladesh uh backed up their win in the third T twenty I against India with another upset over India in the first one day international. They won by 40 runs on the DLS method. And 18-year-old Marufa Akhtar, uh, who was pretty much unearthed at the um, T20 World Cup in South Africa. We saw her earlier this year and were really, really impressed. She went on with it, a couple of wickets there. Uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, I think that was a, a really um, unexpected result. And that's because we think that India are, especially after the WPL, going to dominate not just in the Asian region of women's cricket, but we expect them to start challenging the likes of England and Australia. And Bangladesh, I think they're a really interesting case study. We've spoken about the next T20 World Cup being held there. There's a lot more in terms of development and interest in women's cricket than I think meets the eye at first. And so this is a result which I think we're going to look back and see this as a result where Bangladesh really announced themselves as a power on the women's cricket stage. So it was a pretty low-scoring game, and that's been the theme of the series so far, although it's been quite spinner-friendly up until this match, which uh, we saw Marufa, as you mentioned, take those four wickets. But Bangladesh totaled 152 and 43 overs. It was rain-interrupted, and a scoring rate of 3.5 and overs, not really something that you'd think would be that threatening. No big results to talk about there. Nigar Sultana, the captain, was the top scorer with 39. And you'd think India would have fancied their chances of chasing that, even though it was reduced. It was reduced to 154 from 44 overs. They had plenty of time. Really, they've got a batting lineup: Smriti Mandana, Yastika Bhatia, Harman Kaur, Jamima Rodriguez, players who we know and who we've seen score quickly, hit the ball hard, hit the ball long. But unfortunately, they were just not able to get going. They were reduced to 30 for two by Marufa early on. Then they crashed to 91 for six. And from there, there was just no way back for them. Marufa finished with four for 29 and Rabia Khan with three for 30. And for Bangladesh, Nigar Sultana said afterwards that this is the kind of match that makes history. This is the kind of game that is going to be inspirational. It's going to be one of those that gets looked back as an icon match for Bangladesh and for what they can do in terms of the development of their cricket. So imagine now if they're to go on and maybe win the series. As we are recording this podcast, it's not looking too good for them. They're uh, in the second ODI. They're 38 for three, chasing 229. But there is a third match to go, which will take place at the weekend. And who knows if Bangladesh can spring a massive surprise over India, who are maybe wobbling a little bit and... I don't want to be too predictive too soon, but we know from when the IPL was introduced in the Indian men's game, they haven't gone on to win a white ball trophy since then. And we thought that the opposite would happen for the women's game. The WPL would end up really giving India a lot of uh, access to international talent and would be great for their game. And by all in intents and purposes, it could still well be that. But from what we're seeing for now, they're slipping a little bit and they've been pushed by teams that really on paper they should be beating. And then also we've had that um, series Sri Lanka and New Zealand. Sri Lanka won the One Day Internationals 2-1 um, and then they won the last T20i, still lost the series, but won that last T20i by 10 wickets. Uh, Chamari Atapatu again starring with the bat. Is, 
we've talked a little bit about New Zealand sort of underperforming or maybe, yeah, underperforming perhaps considering, you know, who they've got in their side and, and how, you know, how good they have been in the past. I mean, is, is this another sort of turning point, another shift, Sri Lanka, you know, overtaking them or, or positioning themselves to do so? Yeah, again, I think it's an interesting one for a New Zealand team that are probably going to start to hit that transition phase in the next year or two. We see some of the experienced players, Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, Leah Tuhu, who's still playing and, you know, for as long as they can, I'm sure they would like to. But I think they're going to hit a little patch where we're going to see a bit of the depth disappear and they'll have to kind of mine the uh, New Zealand traps for some more talent. And then Sri Lanka, who were disappointing, really, at the T20 World Cup, although they won the opening match. And I don't think they've really sparked as a women's team and, and really showed us the potential of what they can do probably till now. So winning the series is, is a really, really big thing for them. Of course, we speak about Chamari Atapatu, but there's also some great performances from their bowlers. Ina Koranawira, the very experienced spinner, she's been doing very well for them. Conditions, of course, would have suited Sri Lanka. They do well at home generally, and it seemed as though the results across the T20 and the one-day series, they were quite big margins of victory either way. So it looks as though the teams were not pushing each other to the bone, but really there was dominance on either side. Every time someone got the upper hand, they just drilled it home. So it's great for world cricket that we're starting to see teams that we think should be winning, teams that we know have historically won, being pushed and challenged and maybe coming up short, as we're seeing with, with the New Zealand and Sri Lanka series. And I'm really pleased for Sri Lanka because... As we know, the country's been through a very difficult time. The men's team have just gone through the World Cup qualifiers and they took it very seriously. They, they made it very clear that for them not to qualify for a World Cup, given their status as former champions, unlike other former champions who didn't say this, uh, would, be, would be disastrous for them. And, and that they were very, very adamant that they could not leave Zimbabwe without a World Cup berth. It seems that cricket is taking a pride of place in the country once again, and I'm hoping that that reflects in the women's team as well. Some good results, of course, as they keep playing, they're just going to get better and better. So I'm excited to see how the Sri Lankan women's team develops in the next year, and especially with that T20 World Cup in Bangladesh, because, again, conditions are going to suit them, and you think that they can make a really serious case to push for a place, hopefully in the knockouts, or maybe even if it's a group stage, you know, to get out of the group and to advance a little bit further. But now we're moving on, I guess, to the 100. What's next for, for women's cricket and kind of what, what are you guys looking forward to there in the, in the north? We're still waiting for summer to arrive and, and waiting for some fixtures, I guess. Yeah, so, yep, definitely the 100. And that's, um, that's really key to the, the women's uh, competition in particular. I think the men's um, events saw a little bit of a tail off in, in interest, you know, among players and, and fans a little bit last year. But um, the women's is is going, you know, pretty strong, and it's such an important, um, I guess, development tool as well, if you can call it that, because you're getting, you know, these players. It's talked about all the time. These players, you know, exposed to big crowds, uh, world class opposition, world class teammates, learning a lot, testing themselves. So, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's the next thing that that we look to here. Um, and then. After that, we have got the uh, tour by Sri Lanka um, over here visiting us in England. So, uh, yeah, plenty to look forward to. We will be keeping tabs on all of it and you can catch up with that on ESPNCricketVote.com. See you next time. <laughs>